So hello and welcome. Happy Saturday. Today is Saturday, February the 3rd, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 243. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I'm glad that you're here. Surprise, surprise, I didn't do it Saturday or Friday, because Friday I was interviewing Dr. Marla Spivak at the University of Minnesota Bee Lab. So very interesting. If you missed it, please look down in the video description and follow the link there. So today we're going to talk about uh, all the topics that were submitted for consideration during the past week. But you might wonder what's going on outside right now. Good things. For starters, the bees are flying. It's 40 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 4 degrees Celsius, but it's sunny. So the bees can get out, do cleansing flights, do all that stuff. We have a mild wind, 4.5 miles per hour. And Friday was Groundhog Day. If you didn't know, the groundhog did not see his shadow. That's Punxsutawney Phil here in Pennsylvania, and that means early spring. So, 72% relative humidity, and as I said, sunny bees are flying. So, great opportunity to get out and see if your bees are even alive, and make sure those entrances are open. So anyway, uh, we'll get right into it. If you want to know how to submit your own topic for consideration, please go to the website, thewaytobe.org. Click on the page also titled The Way to Be. This is also a podcast, so if you want to listen rather than watch, please do a Google search, The Way to Be podcast, and you'll find it because it's on a lot of different podcast apps. So we'll get right into it. We're going to start off with Mark from Fayetteville, Arkansas. I know you mentioned Beescape, yet to try it. So I thought I'd ask your experience. Here's my, here's my question. What's the best three cities or towns in America for honeybee production? If I hit the lottery, what land acreage would be best to buy for a sideliner apiary? And that's pretty much it. So here's the thing. I have a lot of thoughts about that, by the way. And because I've often wondered particularly for those who are going into commercial or in this case sideliner. What's a sideliner anyway? Well, according to the Bee Informed Partnership, sideliners are anyone with 500 beehives or fewer. And I think uh, backyard beekeepers like hobbyist level goes up to maybe 50 hives, somewhere around there. So by that definition, I fall into the hobbyist level, but I often think about this. If I were to go commercial, Am I in the right spot? Because you think about the investment of a commercial beekeeping operation, apiaries, breeding yards, drone yards, queen finishing yards, and all the other stuff that goes along with it, because you have to have your own programs. I would definitely be looking at environmental issues first. There are reasons why some of the biggest beekeepers in the United States are in southern states. And northern beekeepers often have the expense of migrating their hive south to winter and then bringing them back around through a circuit that follows the bloom and their pollinator contracts and things like that. So this really comes down to what you're going to do. So I'm going to answer this from the backyard beekeeper perspective. Let's say I had no roots in any state and I'm actually willing to move around and set up and buy a property where I'm just going to raise my own honeybees as a sideliner or smaller, just a backyard beekeeper. So I did a little search, but um, I looked at it from a different perspective. For example, not necessarily just where the honey would be the most abundant, right? Not just for honeybees either. I thought, let's look at it from the broader scope of pollinators. So guess what came out number one? Portland, Oregon came out as a really top pollinator city, and that's because 1,500 registered pollinator gardens were listed there. So that's a pollinator-friendly uh, place in the United States. The next one, number two, was Austin, Texas. So we make a jump down to the south part. Million Pollinator Garden Challenge. So they're trying to really boost pollinator participation. So they're trying to get people to convert their green spaces into pollinator-friendly landscapes. So that's another one. And the third on the list is Boulder, Colorado, dedicated to open space preservation. So when you look at things like that, I guess, you know, check in. I think probably beekeepers aren't the best people to ask. Do you know why? Uh, they may not tell you the truth because I think the last thing a beekeeper wants is for other beekeepers beekeepers to come in and establish your apiaries right next to him or her. 
Who wants that? I've listened to commercial beekeepers, big sideliners complain when another beekeeper shows up and moves in right nearby. It creates competition. It uh, also might be a conflict in bee genetics. And so what you're moving around, things like that. So one of the things I personally think about, one of my favorite places to live when I was growing up uh, was in Flagstaff, Arizona. I lived on San Francisco Street. I'll never forget it. I was a fourth grader. But my street ended right into a national forest. So there was Devil's Chair and uh, just, I don't know, maybe thousands of acres of pine trees and open areas right there. So here's why I'm thinking about that now. If I wanted to set up an apiary, if I was looking to buy a property, I would look at uh, state and federal land use, right? So look where there are preserves, places where there won't be any farming activity and there won't be any more housing development. So if you could get a property right along the line of some national forest or something, then look what you've done. You've secured access for your bees to an area that's not going to be modified and hopefully will remain protected. So look at a climate that you like and look at the kind of native floral species that exist in that area, including trees. And then see if it's a good spot for your bees. And if it is, and it happens to be a good economic location for you, then that's how I would look at it. And I would definitely try to get some land right up against uh, even game lands, stuff like that, because those places are going to be preserved and untouched and provide miles of forage for your bees. So that's just how I would think of that. But that is an interesting question that I originally wasn't going to answer, but I thought, huh, why not get the wheels turning there? thinking about the land that you're going to occupy and what it means for you and your bees. So, and Flagstaff, Arizona, what a great place uh, to live as a kid. I'm not sure if, if my mom cared that much about me because as a fourth grader, she turned me loose on Friday night and I was allowed to camp out in the woods with my friends who were also fourth and fifth graders. And then we just had to be home Saturday morning to clean our rooms. Would that fly today? I don't know if she was secretly hoping I wouldn't come back or something. I don't know, but I was a free-range kid for sure. Moving on to question number two comes from Michael, Washington, Kansas. It says here, I'm interested in rearing queens this year and wanted to get your advice on the frame isolation cage sold by Better Bee. Would you recommend the one or two frame model? I'm only wanting to be able to time the egg laying by the queen. Is there any reason to get the two frames versus the one frame version? They're about the same price. What do you recommend? I definitely recommend the single frame version. And here's the thing. They also offer them in a medium depth frame. So I like the deep frames because most brood boxes are deep. I know that some people practice medium box hive management only. And so they do offer the medium ones, but the single frame. I don't see a huge advantage in the double frame. This is what we're talking about. Here's the double frame one, which by the way, to put this in your beehive, you're going to have to remove three frames to accommodate it. And the single frame is right here. Just for comparison purposes, single and double frames. But the single frame can do everything you want, I think. So... Why buy both? If you were, if you were going to keep a queen closed up in this for an extended period of time, uh, the double frame would allow you to do that and not lose production. So that's going to be your call, but the single frame I think would be more versatile, less disruptive when you're just isolating a single frame of brood. You have to pull two frames to do it. You'll be bringing one of those frames back. So that's an easy one. I'm surprised that they're about the same price. So that's pretty good. Question number three, moving on. Mike from Franklin, Wisconsin. I'm just west of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We have four hives, four Italians started, had to replace one, found a buck fast queen locally. They all seem to be doing well and tops are insulated. Winter feed, a sugar brick and a hive alive fondant. We have used both Formic Pro and Oxalic Acid vaporization using the Laura Bees Instant Vape. People often say Insta-Vape, but it's instant, like instant oatmeal, instant vape. 
So anyway, it's a great tool. My question, I get a lot of emails from suppliers. Recently, Man Lake said we should do an OA vape treatment. Is this prudent? Their uh, reasoning is lack of brood. It makes sense, but I wanted to get your feedback. Okay, so oxalic acid vaporization is the most effective when there is very low or no brood. But here's what I want to talk about kind of for everyone. You should know the history of your hives going into wintertime. If it's a colony that did not have high mite loads and you did your treatments on time last fall or maybe at the end of November, 1st of December for my neck of the woods, that would be our lowest brood time. So if you have a period where you're low broods, plus you know for a fact you have mites and you need to treat, then I would treat them. But if you know the history of the hive and your mites were under control, I would not this time of year, although this is in uh, Franklin, Wisconsin. I don't know what the temperature is like there. Because you do have to also consider not just the reduction of brood. And keep in mind, if, if a seller like Man Lake shotguns out a message like that, uh, it's really not tailored to the local climates that they're shipping to. So uh, what I'm thinking about is if you've got temps that are not warm enough for your bees to break cluster, then your treatment with oxalic acid, which by the way is very low invasive if you're going to drill a hole in the back of your hive or if you already have the hole there so you can do these treatments, um, treating with the oxalic acid does not require you to open it up as it would, for example, with Formic Pro or if you're going to have to put something in or a patty or a packet on top of the frames, oxalic acid can be done without taking the hive apart, so that's an advantage. But unless the cluster breaks and uh, that oxalic acid vapor, if it does not have access to the brood area, which would be in the center of the cluster, then it's gonna have a very low effective uh, treatment profile. You know, it's just not gonna get in where it needs to be. So unless you know it's a troubled colony and you're still trying to salvage it, I would not throw in another treatment. So just my thoughts and that's it. If it did, like I said, if it had problems with uh, varroa mites and you're still trying to get them under control, then maybe take advantage of it. But where I live, even here in the northeastern United States, the state of Pennsylvania, they're brooding up. So it's kind of late to be trying that. Question number four comes from Paul, Stroudsburg, PA. My question is about water used for sugar syrup. My water is from the municipal water supply, so it is treated. Is it okay to use for sugar syrup or should I be using spring water from the store? Thank you, appreciate it. Okay, so here's the thing. No, I would not buy spring water from the store. So I can just start right off with that. I am, this is a personal call. I do not like individual use drinking water or even buying the gallon things from the store. Um, those are almost single use containers. And then what are we doing? We're chucking them in the trash, hoping they get recycled. So just personally, I don't like that. So what do I do instead? I filter my water. So there are a lot of good filters out there. Um, I did do water testing to see what the bees preferences were, but that's of course how I arrived at the water that I then subsequently would use to do further testing for different essential oils and things like that. So the first step was to see if they would go for city treated water. So for a lot of people that means that you're going to have chlorinated water. It might be fluoridated, so it has a lot of things in it. And uh, someone was doing sugar syrup tests with uh, plain sugar syrup and then using honeybee healthy added together and the bees had a you know a preference for the honeybee healthy in the sugar syrup with city water which is very interesting because the sugar syrup by itself with sugar with the sugar added but city water treated water the bees avoided it and showed a preference for that treated with essential oil however if we took water that was filtered, or in my case, you know, I have a well, so I have different water to begin with. The only issue we have with our well water here is high iron content. But uh, so we filter our water here and it is without uh, industrial or municipal water treatment. So with clean water or filtered water, the bees had a preference for sugar syrup without honeybee healthy or pro health or any of the other essential oils that are designed to get your bees stimulated to consume more sugar syrup. 
So these are baselines that we establish, and that's how I figured out, hey, my bees really like clean water. So what I do here is with my well water, I run it through something called a zero water filter. And the reason I have a lot of concerns here being on a well, because we have agriculture around us. And not too far from me, another neighbor who also has a well that had problems with some bacteria that was coming from surface water and getting down into their well. And of course, the farmers are spreading fertilizers and things like that, even pesticides on the surface of those treated lands. So it eventually makes its way into the water. So that makes me personally want to filter my water. And since I don't want to go through a whole tray of water bottles because I drink a lot of water every day, I'd rather filter it and uh, make gallons of it. The filters aren't dirt cheap either, but uh, it's less trash in the landfill and uh, you're getting filtered water. So the reason I chose zero water, I used to use Pure, P-U-R, which I used to get from Walmart. That was pretty decent. It was an okay filter, but when I found out that this one filters 99.9% .9 of total dissolved solids, including lead, mercury, and chlorine. So you could take city water run it through this filter, although I don't know why you would if you already have city water and if it's safe, then it's good for you. I think your bees will still use it, but given choices, they would show a preference for the one that lacked city treated water. So it's kind of like if it's the only thing you're gonna put in there, chances are they're going to take it. So I'm saying, please don't buy water just to feed your bees sugar syrup. I don't think it's that important. But if you are over the top and you really want to make sure that you're going to give the bees something that they would pick, then you get pure water. So filtered water. And uh, the reason, again, that I like that here is because if something showed up in my well water, it would get it. So my well is 85 feet deep. Uh, I could have stopped at 30 feet, but I was very concerned about surface water getting to that water table. And I wanted to keep drilling and get all the way down to more than 80 feet just because I felt like the water's going to be better. So just to be clear, city water is okay to mix with sugar syrup to feed your bees. If you provide them with the option, the bees are going to choose the water that was not treated even though the sugar content is the same. So you can even do your own test, find out. But please don't buy bottled water just to feed your bees. There are hose filters and everything else too that can help out with that. Question number five. This comes from Michael from Brisbane, Australia. In episode 242, you mentioned not to feed sugar syrup after installing a honey super. I have just added a super of Ross round frames and a top feeder containing two liters of thin syrup as a resource for comb building. Have I messed this up? Will the bees use it for comb building or store it somewhere? Thanks for your time. Okay, so now we're in the territory of what I personally would do. And when it comes to hives that if you're going to, if you're making comb honey in there, Ross rounds, hog halves, whatever kind of comb honey situation you have, once you're going to have your bees produce anything that's going to be sold or consumed as honey by people, right? I never recommend feeding any sugar syrup. That's it. It's really basic. So if you totally screwed up, I would just get it out of there. Because at the time that they're storing enough honey, creating the surplus that they need to produce something as demanding as comb honey, then um, you do not want sugar syrup anywhere. No open feeding. And uh, because you never know where it's going to go. And there's always the chance that it shows up in your syrup. Apomondia had a big hubbub, a big fluff up. I don't know what you would call it. They had the uh, honey entries and they came out with a contracted company that did testing of the honey. Now, I don't know if the people that were submitting their samples for, you know, for judging, I don't know if they knew ahead of time that there was going to be this rigorous testing applied. But conservatively, more than 40% of the entries at an Apamondia honey show were disqualified for a variety of reasons. One was sugar syrup. The other was things other than honey in it and even had uh, things like pesticide in the honey. 
And when I asked about that, they said, well, it's pesticide that beekeepers use, like kumafos. So there were things that beekeepers used to control pests inside their hive that showed up in the honey, which then disqualified the honey. It was a big deal. Now, I don't know if they did that at the last Epimondia, but it made a huge, I don't know, it was embarrassing for a lot of beekeepers that submitted their samples because um, they put the labels that it was a disqualified honey product right on each one so that people that were there could see it. What are your thoughts about that? Um, but it does show that uh, they have keyed up on their ability to find tainted honey and honey that has other things in it besides what it should have, which better be just from the pollen and nectar of plants. So, and yes, some pollen does get into the honey. So it's one of the ways they validate real raw honey is the pollen content. So there you go. Do not make sugar syrup available to your bees once supers are on. Now, if you have an apiary and you've got a couple of hives that are struggling a little bit or that uh, can't do what you need them to do and they do need a little carbohydrate boost, then in hive feeding and that hive does not get a super anyway, they're struggling, you wouldn't be taking anything off of it. So uh, an option to that would be take from a strong colony and fortify the wheat colony with actual honey from those colonies. You could shift those resources around, but I don't see anything wrong with a nucleus hive, for example, and having uh, in hive on the top, inner cover, uh, sugar syrup just for them. So I don't think that's at risk of getting spread around through the rest of your apiary. So moving on to question number six, this comes from Brad Oliphant. Uh, that's the YouTube name. If It says, I see you're snowed in, Fred. Hope your bees are okay. Well, we're not snowed in anymore. And by the way, it's going to hit 50, according to the weather people that know everything and are never wrong on Friday. So a week from yesterday, it's going to be 50 here. So it says, uh, I am aware in the next couple of months that queens will start brooding back up in time for spring. My question with no pollen left in the hive or what little is left, how is this possible? And so this is a very common question. I wasn't going to answer it because I've answered this several times before, but I think a lot of people are wondering this time of year, uh, don't do hive inspections, please, when we have cold weather just to see if you have pollen and resources in there, because if they don't, you're going to be feeding them. Why not put an emergency food resource on your hive anyway, just in case? Now, the question is, we know what bees need to brood up. So the number one thing that they need is they need a carbohydrate, and that's what honey's for. Honey also always has a small percentage of pollen in it. Uh, it's not enough to rear brood. So we go back to what are called fat-bodied winter bees. Fat-bodied winter bees, and this is complicated. That's why, you know, I almost don't like talking about it in general because I mentioned things like vitelligenin and somebody else will think, but that's only for juvenile hormone. And this gets complicated for people. So I'm going to simplify this. Vitelligenin does get used, but it helps uh, the bees develop specific cell structure when they are in their development stages. That's why these fat-bodied winter bees are developed differently than normal nurse bees. They get a lot more fat storage capability, a lot more fat cells in their head, their thorax, their abdomen, and it's distributed differently from other nurse bees that would be developed in a time of plenty. So what do these bees do? Well, first of all, they don't fly out and they don't forage. They're nurse bees exclusively. And they are your security system. They're your insurance policy for making sure that that hive in winter can develop some brood. And the reason I say that is because you won't see a huge brood buildup from them. So these bees consume pollen and honey, and they have those resources, they metabolize these resources, and they store them in their fat cells in their bodies. And that's why they're referred to as fat-bodied winter bees. Uh, they can also do this in periods of dearth, as I've mentioned before. So whenever times are lean and resources are not coming into the hive, they start producing these bees, and these are the insurance policy to guarantee that there can be some survival level of brood reproduction. So in the wintertime, like right now, if you were to pull apart a hive, and I'm not recommending that you do, 
But if you pull it open and you see that there's absolutely no pollen in there, how on earth are they rearing brood when we know that they need to metabolize pollen, which is the protein that they use then to produce the resources, royal jelly and other mixes that are going to develop larvae. Uh, it comes from the fat-bodied winter bees. So they are using up their fat stores, their resources that are already in their body to produce brood on a very small scale, just enough to keep that colony surviving. And it's the amount of brood that's produced, the number of fat-bodied winter bees that are present that may be genetically uh, tied. So the size of brood, this is why we say uh, things like carniolan bees, for example, these lines would have a very small brood pattern going into winter. And you might see a large percentage of fat-bodied nurse bees in there and they would start producing and nourishing um, larvae. So the queen, of course, is gonna lay these eggs and then the worker bees are gonna nourish those larvae after the third day when the egg hatches. So it's just enough to keep your colony alive. So yes, it comes from their bodies, even though you don't see any more pollen in the cells in the bee frames, which are adjacent to where the brood is. So also that kind of works out because if the bees are moving up into your honey stores, look at your honey frames early in the year or at the end of September when you're doing your final pack downs. We have honey frames that are nothing but capped honey. There's no pollen up there. So the pollen is usually stored around the brood area in those cells, although on occasion you'll see an adjacent frame that might be nothing but pollen. And in fact, some bees will overstore, overharvest pollen and you end up with almost too much of it. So, but the thing is they consume it down there as winter progresses and then pretty soon all the pollen's gone, but where has it gone? It's metabolized and most of it is in the bodies of the nurse bees themselves. And uh, people like Randy Oliver, scientific beekeeping, has pulled these fat-bodied winter bees and just crushed their guts out just to see what was in them. And every single bee was loaded with pollen. So they had the protein resources available to produce what they need to keep the brood going in periods of no pollen from the environment and no pollen stored in the hive. So there you have it. It's a very simple thing. And there are published papers. I may put a link uh, to that for those who want to do a deep dive and fall out of your chairs from all the detail that's in those studies about how, you know, vitellogenin gets used and how it migrates through the system and gets metabolized and modifies cells so they can later be used to store more resources that later get used to provide nutrition for the bees and on it goes. So lots of different uh, research has been done and I'll try to put that link down for question number six. So moving on to question number seven. This is Les from Bath, Michigan. Is there a way to locate a drone area? We live in a rural area and I had a neighbor who had an apiary. However, they recently moved away and I don't know of any other hives within five to 10 miles. And uh, all of the numbers of the local bee group live even farther. It says, I'm concerned that if I try to do a split or the hive needs to replace the queen, the new queen might not have a nearby drone congregation area. I worry I may not get a fertilized queen. Okay, so here's the thing. This is what we should know. First of all, a lot of people put a lot of effort into locating drone congregation areas. And I think that's interesting. You know, they have all these kind of formulas about it'll be in a dip in, you know, the woods and then a dip in a meadow and a near clearing and so many, you know, feet in the air and everything else. And can spend a lot of time and, and energy trying to locate drone congregation areas. And my thought on that is why? It doesn't change anything. We're not going to move our apiary closer to the drone congregation area. And there's some things that we should know. One is that queens can fly very far. Of course, queens can fly out and mate with a drone a thousand yards from your apiary. They could fly out and mate on the wing with a drone, um, you know, a hundred yards from your apiary. So they don't always make it all the way to a drone congregation area before they end up mating with a drone. Now the goal is not to have them mate with drones from their own genetics, right? Because we want that diversity. 
And uh, so the record flying queens, I think they can go nine miles. It doesn't mean that they always will go nine miles. It means that this is the outer range of a queen, which is important to those who are trying to find an isolated area to develop their stock and try to not be impacted by competing genetics. So they look to be as geographically isolated as they can possibly be. And that's where you have to consider these extremes. You have the one queen that flew out that went nine miles. Now that's not very energy efficient because she has to make it back too. So um, they could go the five miles that's described here, but here's what I would do. You know, we're backyard beekeepers. Spring comes, you're uh, doing your walkaway splits or whatever you decide to do when you're developing your own queens or allowing them to rear their own queens, which is a really good idea in my opinion. And when they rear that queen and she flies out and does her mating flight, you're going to know uh, whether she was mated. And also you're going to know if she was mated to something too closely genetically related to her, because that will demonstrate itself in the progeny that she produces. So when you start to see a good brood pattern, good bees coming out of it, then you'll know that you're pretty well set. And I personally would not be too concerned. Um, I don't know about this area, but another way you can do a safety check, uh, go to beescape.org, punch in your address and see what the environment looks like for native habitat for honeybees. And that means it's habitat suited to bees that would fly away and get out of control of apiary owners and then the habitat being suitable for them to find a cavity to live in. So you may have feral bee colonies, even though you don't know anyone keeping bees, you may have feral colonies of bees already established. And to me, that would be great stock to send out their drones and mate with your bees. So I wouldn't personally worry about it, but I do hope less lets us know what happens in spring. But, uh, the idea of finding the drone congregation area this time of year, good luck. Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't lose any sleep over it. I would just keep my bees healthy, see if they brood up. If you find yourself queenless, of course you can bring one in, but the best stock you're going to get will be those that are already local to you. And I'll bet you you're set. I think that queen is going to find the mating resources that she needs. So we're going to move on to question number eight. It comes from Kyle and it just says from PA. I was recently listening to a presentation from Dr. Carol Wagner and uh, talking about hygienic bees. In part of her presentation, she discussed the loss of the hygienic trait over time, requeening, and had some results from their studies showing that if you are open mating your queens, you really need to test the queens to know if they're considered hygienic or not. Are you aware of any studies that discuss the loss of hygienic traits? Based on the presentation, it has me concerned that as people are looking to purchase bees in the spring, they could be spending money for VSH or other hygienic bees that actually might not be more hygienic than a normal package. So, and that's true, desirable traits, uh, even people that are running huge breeding yards may find that a very small percentage of them meet the hygienic standards. So, and for some people that are wondering, what are hygienic bees? Well, these are bees that react to anomalies inside the hive, to diseased bees. They also react to varroa mite presence and may even uncap brood and dry out the varroa and then recap the brood. Uh, so they do a lot of interesting things and there are tests to see if they are um, hygienic bees. In other words, how quickly do they locate a problem underneath a capped pupa? And then they, of course, cut off the cap. And at uh, the North American Honeybee Expo, I did an interview with someone there um, who was selling a product that was used to spray the surface of the uh, brood area and then uh, identify that area and see how quickly your bees respond to that and how quickly they uncap and show that they are hygienic. And some people are not really excited about overly hygienic bees. And because there seems to be a trade-off in uh, these traits being a benefit, but also sometimes they're overly hygienic. Uh, they're kind of like Spartans. They get rid of everything that doesn't look perfect. And before you know it, you have brood reduction because they're dragging out and casting out all of these developing pupa. So it can work against you, but here's the thing. 
I think that, uh, and you're right, when you buy, I bought Saskatraps bees uh, because I thought they were going to be awesome. They come from Saskatchewan, Canada. They had a really good track record up there. But then I found out that when the queens were brought here to the United States, that they were being open-mated. So in other words, it was kind of potluck. You were getting part of those genetics, but you were also getting some mating with some unknown drones. So open mating is always a challenge, and that's why we leave the breeding to the people that can really work the numbers, right? And that's why I've kind of given up personally, small scale. Keep in mind, I only have a little over 30 colonies of bees here. I can't run a breeding operation, but I can certainly keep and work with my stock that demonstrates the traits that I like to see. And uh, for hygienic behavior for mine, I like to see overgrooming. So that's once the bees are out of their uh, pupa stage, they've emerged. And as soon as they get out, I have these little groomers that go after them and, and make sure that there are no Varroa destructor mites on them. And uh, this past year, we had very good Varroa destructor mite numbers. So what we can learn is that we have to continually and actively select our own stock we can't kind of turn the tide completely. And by that, I mean, we don't have enough bees to keep the stock awesome. And when I was talking with uh, Dr. Spivak yesterday, uh, we discussed some of the chances of working through breeding operations exclusively and hoping to go treatment free and things like that. We all know that genetics are the future, but our genetics are constantly being messed with. And that's because we don't control all the bees in every direction. Um, so we don't have that opportunity. I was giving some thought to that actually when I was thinking of people like Ian Stepler and uh, Etienne Tardif and people that are in areas where bees don't live in the environment feral. In other words, the only bees that are there are those kept by beekeepers. So it makes me think, and I realize these operations are big, big money, replacing their stock is a huge thing. But if there are no feral colonies, in other words, there's no competition for your bee operation out in the environment, does that not then mean that you have the opportunity to have a stock of bees that has no Varroa destructor mites and work outward from there? I mean, obviously that's overly simplifying it because it only takes one mite to kick things back off again. But would there not be a way to bring bees there and start fresh and have mite-free bees and therefore all of those diseases that are affected by the mites would also be absent from your bees because there are people uh, that are occupying islands. I think there's an island off Nova Scotia and uh, they're treatment free but that's because there's no other competing bees and no other apiaries and no influx of bee disease. Seems like it could work but I would not trade places so Flashback to one of the earlier questions, where would you go if you were trying to raise bees? I would not go where Ian Stepler lives. I would not go where Etienne Tardif lives. So those are challenging environments and good for them for making it at all up there. But uh, the hygienic traits can water down quickly. So they supersede one of your queens. You lose a swarm. You lost your queen. Now whatever the replacement queen is, is going to be your new genetic line because she's going to mate with a bunch of drones and you're carrying the genetics of all of those drones. So think about it. You would have to control all of the drone genetics. This is why we have drone yards, and this is why we have finishing yards and mating yards, and, and they try to isolate those. The family that comes to mind is the Bee Weaver family in Nova Soda, Texas. Uh, they seem to be out there in an area where they have a lot of control over genetics. And uh, even Daniel had to take his bees to another state to do some of these mating yards and everything just came apart. Their genetics came apart and they didn't realize that there was another apiary there that wasn't registered, that was local to them, and it totally offset all their genetic progress. So these are delicate things. So from the backyard beekeeper perspective, choose, keep, and recycle the stock that you prefer the most. That is consistently demonstrating low mite loads, does not show disease issues, that is not too hot. So all of these things we expect from our bees. And uh, if you're looking for high honey production and things like that, ultimately you would think you could just make up this list of all these traits that you want and then start choosing queens that have those traits. 
for me, it boils down to one thing. Which ones survive? Which ones chew mite feet? And which ones make it through winter really well year after year? And so I end up with really good stock. And so for those I'm mentoring who I've given bees to, because I don't sell them, uh, I get really good feedback about how robust they are, how strong they are, and how well they do. And that is just a matter of cycling back bees from my own environment in spring. And then when I do need to buy a queen, I go to someone who has a good reputation who I want to cast my financial vote for. So that's why in the past I've often recommended bee weaver queens because I want to support the program, not because I have any hope of converting my entire apiary into those genetics and traits because it just can't be done on the scale uh, that I'm doing things and in the environment where I have all these drones around me. So I don't know if that helps, but um, yes, they're delicate. It takes a lot to keep them going. And the goal is not to buy bees, not to have to. And so your locally adapted stock cycled back year after year and then culling out colonies that just don't do well, that uh, don't breed from them, remove their queens, replace their queens, combine colonies, uh, with those that are doing extremely well and so on. And eventually you end up with a really good locally adapted stock. And that might actually be the best that you can hope for. So that was the last question for the day. So we're actually in the fluff section and it's going to be pretty much a repeat of last week's recommendations. Last week we did uh, live stream. Which, by the way, thank you for all the feedback on that. Those of you who have voiced your concerns about liking or not liking the live stream, it seems like having a live stream the last Friday of every month seems to be the most popular choice. So um, right now, you should be out. By the time you're listening to this, it might be dark. But uh, when the sun is shining and we have days like this, it's a great time to go out and make sure that your entrances are open, your bees are flying, and have access to everything. Check their feed and resources. If they're lacking food, I personally, if I were your mentor right here where I live, and you called me up and you said they're completely out of resources, should I just let them die for you know Darwinian beekeeping because they didn't store enough resources, should I just let them die? And I would say, no, feed them. Put fondant on there. Fondant today is my favorite emergency backup resource. All the bees are using it. It is going to save colonies of bees. Back in the day when I was treatment-free and thinking like they were all Spartans and they'll either survive or die, I lost 30% of my colonies every winter, which, by the way, was in line with those that were treating their hives. So my treatment-free stock was making it at the same rate that uh, the ones that were treating their hives were. In fact, some of the people treating their hives had higher losses than I did going treatment-free. So, But I had to actively uh, get rid of any bees in stock that were not keeping up with varroa mites and things like that. And that's something a lot of people just are not willing to do. Therefore, treatment becomes the option. You get to keep your bees and you can keep the varroa destructor mite parasites under control. So prepare your supers and frames for spring. People are going to be caught off guard. I was really happy to participate in the uh, stream teams rapid fire question group. Uh, so nature's image farm. If you know that channel, uh, they invited a whole bunch of beekeepers from all over the country and maybe even other parts of the world uh, to give their spring uh, build up time frames and practices and things like that. And uh, one thing for sure, if you don't have your supers, your gear, and if everything is not pre-staged for spring, you will be caught off guard. You will have swarms and then you won't know what to do with them. And so being able to take advantage of those early warm days so that you can super hive when it needs it will help you keep your bees. Now, sometimes you're going to get a swarm no matter what you can do, no matter what you try. You can expand, you can do all these things. Uh, you're still going to have bees that want to swarm. That's genetically what they're predisposed to do, but you will have done everything you could. So um, one of the great, by the way, swarm control systems that I've seen that I learned about last year for the first time is the Keeper's Hive. So if you would look that up, uh, for those going into spring that do not want to lose their bees to a swarm, 
that looked like a very viable method of managing bees and keeping them in your yard and having access to the brood without pulling off all of your supers every time. So the keeper's hive, they're onto something there when it comes to setting it up so that you can manage bees in spring. And by keeping them from swarming, you of course get much more honey production because instead of recovering from establishing a new queen, they're just marching on and keeping their brood going and keeping their honey production going. So it's a very interesting system. Highly recommend that you look into it. Always when you go out to your bee yard, hopefully it's nearby. I know some people set up bee yards that are a 15 minute drive from their house. I personally couldn't do that. I would be in a constant state of worry about what my bees are doing. But I do realize some people live in cities and they can't have their bees right there. So you want to make sure that everything is trapped good, that their alignment is retained. You can bring a bar clamp with you, the screw type bar clamps, and you can use those to really slowly bring boxes back into alignment and uh, just make sure that you're not getting gaps and stuff. Spring weather is going to be widely variable. You're going to get frost heave. Things are going to start tipping. And uh, just be aware of the alignment of your hives and what's going on there. Clean entrances, same as you know, my wife just came in and said that she saw a bunch of bees uh, piled up at an entrance. In this case, it was the ivory beehive. And I said, but were bees still coming in and out of the entrance? They were, they just were climbing over the dead bees. So uh, if the bees can come and go, you're pretty good, but it does help them out to go ahead and scrape those out. If it's a small entrance, just use chopsticks and pull them out. If you've got your bee smart, you know, hive clean out tool, this is pretty handy. This is what I give to my grandson. He runs right out there. And of course he's got his quarter inch diameter dowel rod that he uses for the apame openings for those hives. So clean entrances. Um, and if you don't just, just inventory your stuff, this is what catches a lot of brand new beekeepers off guard. Um, they think they're gonna have a couple of beehives and it's gonna be neat and tidy and they might have a little garden shed nearby. And it's astonishing how quickly your garden shed, your garage, your storage areas fill up with all the auxiliary bee equipment. Uh, and that's because you need a place to store your frames. You need a place to keep your foundation from last year. You need a place uh, that's free from pest intrusion. So keeping mice out of there. I've been trapping a lot of mice this year in my storage areas with my Dizzy Dunker, which is a really fun box, which by the way, I'm modifying this afternoon because outsmarting mice is one of my favorite pastimes. The dizzy dunker. So you got to keep rodents and pests. You don't worry in areas like I have here with things like wax moths with stuff in storage because they don't, they'd all be frozen by now. So keep them out having, you know, dry storage bins and totes like the, um, the Hive Butler totes are good and check in with them. If you're going to order Hive Butler totes, ask about the current um, discount code. I think it used to say Fred 5 or there's a Fred 10 and I think that's 5 or 10% off plus free shipping. So check in with them. Hive Butler totes are my favorite way to store empty frames. So they're great. Uh, also, when you go out in spring and if you're going to do any, you know, shifting around of bee frames and things like that, or even when you do a hive inspection, okay? Um, I always historically liked to put um, a frame rack or a frame holder on the side of the hive that I'm inspecting, right? And then you pull a frame out and you hang it right there on that side frame, frame holder, whatever you want to call it. And uh, sometimes the queen could be on that frame. Uh, the other thing is the bees can get a little angsty. Look how exposed they are. So when you pull your, you pull your frame of bees out with your comb and you put it on that outside frame, it is hanging right there. I don't ever want to set my stuff on the ground in the grass. Just becomes a sticky mess. You don't know who you're losing down there. So, and the reason I'm saying all of this is because the Hive Butler totes are my favorite for my temporary frame holders. So when you're pulling frames out, whether it's a long Langstroth hive, whether it's a standard Lang hive, medium, deep box, whatever it happens to be, you can move the bees right on those racks and put them in the hive butler tote. And guess what? They stay very calm there. They're out of the wind. If anything came off the frame, it would be right in the tote. Nothing goes on the grass. Nothing crawls away. So, um, and I'm not, they didn't ask me to talk about them. And I know it seems like I'm promoting them because I'll get some kind of kickback. 
I get zero kickback. It is an excellent tool that works very well. Also, when you're thinking about combining hives or if you're gonna change hive equipment, this is something that happens a lot in spring. We've got an old box. I know that my supervisor, my grandson will be out there and he's gonna want his old blue box um, for hive number 50 that's out there. He's gonna to wanna to swap it out for a new box. Nothing makes that easier for me than a hive butler tote. Pull all the frames out, keep them all in order. Every frame comes out of the box, covered in bees, goes right in the tote. The tote has a lid. I can even transport them to another location with the screened lids that they have. It is easy peasy. You can do it. It's so nice. Everything is in order. Then we throw out the old box, which by the way, are old bee boxes my wife wants to use for raised garden boxes. I thought that's a great way to repurpose, you know, 17 year old hive boxes that are all propolized up and everything. She wants to grow tomato plants in them in her garden. So works for me. I'd rather do that than just throw them on a bonfire. Um, so totes and thinking about things to have convenience wise, uh, this is also a great thing that you would be keeping drawn comb in that you're protecting from pest invasion. So you don't want wax worms to get them once the weather warms up and those wax moths are flying around. They fly around at night. It's kind of weird to see them on night cameras. Uh, checking all around your beehives trying to lay their eggs so that the legs can eggs can hatch and they can get right in there and chew right into your beeswax it's very interesting colonies that are strong healthy and and good to go do not get eaten out by wax moths they just don't the larvae wax worms don't progress your bees chew them up the minute they're too thick to hide in the uh, beeswax anymore so it's the dead outs, it's the, the dying colonies, the abandoned combs and things like that that are not in protected storage that end up getting chewed up and, you know, just all that webbing goes everywhere from the wax moths. So bad idea. So things to think about if you can get boxes, if you don't already have them, those things stack up, easy storage, easy transport. They're versatile is what I'm saying. I know they're expensive, but I don't see myself ever wearing one out. It's a trade off. Okay, supering equipment, clean and organize. And of course, my supervisor's coming on the next warm days here and he wants to put together his beehive for this year. And uh, it's gonna be fun. So when we go out there and we do these things, spring is far off for us. Uh, there isn't gonna be a lot of activity. So go ahead and submit your questions if you have them. Thewaytobe.org, the page, The Way To Be. And uh, that's it for today. So if you have questions or comments, please put them down below and uh, I'll do my best to answer them. I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend and that maybe you're just getting a break like we are. Thanks for watching. Mm -hmm.